Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Well, this week is Spinal Health Week, and the ACA continue to roll out our Consider a Cairo public engagement program. This will be the third iteration of Consider a Cairo, and this year we've focused on the message of neck pain and well-being. If you've seen some of the media coverage, both on uh, radio and commercial television, you'll see that the media have really picked up on our, on our topic of tech neck. Um, this is particularly important given that 75% of the population are hunched over their mobile phone devices every day, and the average Australian spends 5.5 hours on their phone. With heads and shoulders uh, slunched forward 30 to 60 degrees, this can increase the effective weight of the head on the neck to up to 27 kilograms in an average person. So clearly chiropractors need to be making patients aware of this uh, as a potential uh, trigger for neck pain. Now, as we know, neck pain is a very common reason that chiropractors uh, see patients. In fact, it's the second most common reason behind back pain. So it's really uh, something that we should know back to front and inside out. To be a true master of spine and spinal expert, it takes continual refinement and critical thinking. And that's going to be our focus today when we discuss a case study of a patient with a chronically stiff and painful neck. To help me in this discussion today, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Anthony Nicholson. Now, Anthony runs a full-time chiropractic practice with high levels of medical and specialist referral. He's board certified in both chiropractic neurology and chiropractic orthopedics. In addition, Dr. Nicholson is chief executive of Chiropractic Development International, or CDI, which is a leading provider of continuing education for chiropractors across Australia and New Zealand. CDI also provides online clinical training programs to the University of Bridgeport in the USA, which forms part of the Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Training Program that is a postgraduate pathway to board certification for chiropractors worldwide. Now, I will share something with uh, our ACA members and let you know that the ACA is in uh, final discussions with CDI about a partnership that will see ACA members get access to these fabulous education materials at a significantly reduced price, just another member benefit. Uh, now, we're very excited about this partnership and there'll be more to announce about this in just uh, a month or so. But for today, let's get to our topic and I'll uh, say a very warm welcome to the ACA podcast. Today there, Anthony Nicholson. Hello, Anthony. Uh, thank you for having me. Very nice to be here. So today's podcast is a little different. In fact, it's a little bit like your training program. We're going to walk through a case study and learn through virtual experience. Now, I should point out to our uh, listeners that uh, this particular topic is a two-hour online learning experience. But for the sake of our podcast, we're going to do this over two 30-minute uh, podcasts. So uh, this is part one and uh, part two will be released uh, soon. So it's a We'll skip over some bits, but we'll certainly get into some chunky stuff. And uh, if you're willing to take along the journey with us, I'm sure you're going to learn heaps. So, Anthony, let's start with the case history. 
Okay, well, thank you, Anthony. And I think um, this particular case represents, I think, a very important subset of patients that we would see. And I think, as you mentioned, part of being an expert in spine care requires the ability to see a system such as the neck from a range of different perspectives and in many different ways. And in fact, with the upcoming ACA conference, uh, one of the things I'm gonna focus on is different ways of looking at the neck. Uh, so for example, we could look at the neck as a mechanical system um, of joints and discs and ligaments and muscles. Um, and obviously that might lead us to take a very mechanical approach in terms of improving mobility, um, you know, and stretching tight tissues and whatnot. But we can also look at the neck in a number of different ways. For example, the neck is an extraordinary sensory system that is wired into the brain at a range of different levels. So it helps us navigate our environment. It's linked into the balance system for spatial reference. It provides the sensory input for head and neck movement that offsets uh, eye movement so that we maintain a clear visual world. Uh, it houses very important structures like the vertebral artery that supplies blood to the brain and the spinal cord passing through. So, so I think we need to be able to look at the neck in a range of different ways when we see a patient present. And this case, uh, I think, is something we do see very commonly. So in this instance, we've got a 35-year-old accountant. Uh, she suffers from chronic pain and stiffness in the neck that has really developed gradually over quite a long period, so 10 years. As we would commonly see, she couldn't attribute her symptoms to any one injury, though she has been much less active over the past decade. She used to be a high-level dancer and rhythmic gymnast until her 20s, at which time she had children and her activity level dropped right down and she took on a desk job and she was much more sedentary. So during our initial discussions with Mandy, she also recalled us a fall recently on a slippery path, which probably then exacerbated her symptoms a lot. So since that time, she's been considerably worse. Her pain level has increased and she now has transient dizziness. Uh, she's got aching pain in her right scapula and upper arm, and she's had diffuse tingling sensations in her right arm in bed at night. Uh, our patient has consulted her GP who organized an MR of the neck. Uh, this demonstrated degenerative changes at C5-6 and C6-7, though without any signs of focal protrusion or frank neural compression. Now it was explained at that time that she did have degenerated discs and that these were most likely a cause of pain. She's had other manual treatment approaches uh, from various providers uh, with, a, with a variety of approaches. So chin retraction exercises, isometric type approaches, strengthening, mobilization, massage, all sorts of things. The problem is over time, she's had this tendency to get irritated by treatment. It's been very hard to get any sort of traction uh, with her case. It just seems to be persistent. So she also relates that her work has been very stressful over recent months. She's been taking a lot of pain medication, paracetamol, ibuprofen. She still suffers ongoing motion disturbances, periodic dizzy feelings at work, occasional blurry vision. Uh, but overwhelmingly, her main symptom is chronic pain and stiffness in her neck and shoulders. Uh, and this is starting to affect her mood and her anxiety uh, levels are going up. And so 
that I think is probably not an unfamiliar case presentation to our listeners. So that's the case. Um, and so we've got to try and, I guess, dissect this in some way. Uh, I agree. It's certainly a very familiar presentation, not straightforward, but one that chiropractors would, uh, would see, I'd say, regularly in their, in their practice. So before we jump into it, what are the questions as a clinician that you ask yourself at this particular point? What are the things that you really need to be thinking about? Okay, well, I guess first and foremost, most of our patients will come in because of some sort of pain. So if we're talking about a diagnosis, then what does that really constitute? So one of the first things I'll, I'll tend to say to patients is, look, a diagnosis really needs to encompass reasons for pain. So what actual structure or structures do we think are actually generating the pain? So what are the sources of pain? Um, and then more broadly, why? Why is it so persistent? Why isn't it going away? So what are the functional impairments or the other drivers of that pain syndrome over time? So if we can nail that down in a broad diagnosis, then that's really going to guide our management approach. Once we've got a clearer concept about that, we can start to, I guess, strategize regarding uh, the type of treatment approach we'll take. So in this, in this instance, we're gonna be thinking about, okay, what are the most likely pain mechanisms? Um, what are the tissues involved? And, and then, yeah, and, and, and what's driving it? In your um, training module, you call this patient Mandy, so we might as well uh, uh, use her fictitious name just to-, to Yes. To. Um, I like the way you break it up here and you talk about um, your general approach to chronic neck pain in three aspects. Input mechanisms being number one, uh, central nervous system processing mechanisms being number two, and output mechanisms being number three. So, speaking of input mechanisms, first of all, and you mentioned about the pain generators. So, is this uh, a somatic or a neurogenic pain? Um, and is it important? In, in fact, if we even need to understand that. Um, and if it is uh, neurogenic, what are the key kind of signs in, in Mandy's case that might suggest that? Okay, yes, some good questions. So in terms of education, and we've been involved in that for a long time, we're always on the lookout for a good model or a framework. And what I mean by that is a way of organizing a lot of information so it makes sense. Because obviously with a case like Mandy, you know, we've already, I guess, introduced quite an overwhelming amount of information here in some respects. There's so many levels you have to think at with a case like this. So we sought with this particular case study to break it down neatly, if you like, into input mechanisms. So uh, what are the sensory drivers of this problem? What has happened in terms of central changes in the nervous system? So we know that um, the way we move and use our bodies, uh, injuries, pain, all of those things over time are going to change our neurology, both in the spinal cord and brain. Uh, and that even comes right down to beliefs. So a patient's understanding of what's going on with them and how that influences their pain. So we think about the input mechanisms for a start. Then we think about what's happening centrally, the central uh, mechanisms at play, and then the brain's response. So what are the output mechanisms that, be, that might be causing trouble or maintaining this? So, and that's, again, we're we gonna talk about that 
I think, down the line a little bit too, and that is what we might think of as reference frames for understanding something like this. The way you organise information in your head, the, the methodical approach you take. So starting, let's say, with input mechanisms. Um, there, and there are going to be uh, two broad types. We've got somatic pain generators, if you like. So the, the actual hardware themselves, so joint, muscle, ligament, fascia, uh, all of the mechanical structures, and then nerve itself. So we could probably break pain generators down into somatic pain generators, the structural tissues, and neural pain generators, so neurogenic pain. So, so if we start then with uh, you know, pain generators from the somatic tissues. So we know in the cervical spine, that we've got some major pain sources there, disc, facet joint, nerve, muscle. There's a tendency, I guess, in the neck to view discs as smaller versions of the lumbar discs. However, that's really not the case. Discs in the neck uh, degenerate quite early. Um, we'll start to see that even in adolescence. It's progressive with age. Um, by the age of 40 or 45, some you know, neck degeneration of the disc is near universal. So it's not as big a pain source as disc in the lumbar spine. However, we do know that disc degeneration correlates more strongly with pain in the, in the neck than it does in the lower back when you, when you see it. So we know that discs are, are likely a pain generator, but the facet joints are going to be a bigger pain source in terms of prevalence. So we start thinking about facet joints uh, and things like that includes things like synovial folds or meniscoids, as they're called. Uh, and muscle is uh, one of them, but really not up there in terms of prevalence like passive joint and disc. So we start thinking of the ability of those structures to cause pain. And clearly in someone like Mandy, she's sitting for long periods. She's become very sedentary. And we now live in a world, Anthony, where we need small electronic devices to remind us to move, um, which I guess is... Uh, uh, a sign of the times but so we're going to be seeing static loads going through those tissues we've got some degenerative change that's going to change the way the neck moves and the distribution of load so clearly we've got that going on and then nerve itself so nerves can be both transmitters of information but also pain generators so they can be stretched they can be compressed they can be affected by ischemia or inflammation from surrounding facet joint and disc problems and things like that. So, so the first thing we look at with someone like Mandy, okay, what do we think is generating the majority of her pain structurally? What do we think are the main structural pain drivers? And is there nerve involvement as well? So with this, Mandy does um, explain that she gets some tingling sensations. Is that enough for us to think, oh, well, there must be at least a nerve component or genetic component to this? Oh, look, generally, yes. I mean, when we think about distinguishing somatic pain from neurogenic pain, especially when we have an extremity representation, um, which is where you're going to be thinking mostly, you know, about the possibility of nerve pain, something like ting tingling is obviously very neural, uh, often relates to ectopic impulse generation along the nerve. So some things like you imagine static on an on, on electrical cable, for, for instance, 
So here we're seeing the possibility of a, a, a dynamic stretch or compression of a nerve, um, an insult to the nerve in some way there, or the static postures might be reducing blood flow. We know that there are radicular arteries that run through the dural sheath and that in certain static postures, those can be collapsed and that can cause an ischemia of the root. Um, you can also get venous congestion when nerves are a bit cramped by certain postural positions. So if we're starting to see things like tingling, numbness, as opposed to just pain, then you know, we're obviously on the lookout for some neural involvement. And that would be despite the fact that even someone who has, you know, test negative to, to pinwheel, their reflexes are still all fine, their myotomes are all still fine. It's just a, a neural involvement at a less frank level, I'm assuming? Yes, that's right. I think probably the distinction to make there is, is uh, between conduction loss through a nerve versus irritation of the nerve where you're getting additional signals being generated at points along the nerve other than where it should be activated so other than the receptor being activated at the end of the primary afferent and therefore getting a propagated response you're getting the nerve irritated somewhere along its uh, length so it might be in the exit canal or it could be a point of peripheral entrapment for a nerve in the upper limb for example where you're now irritating the nerve and causing ectopic impulse generation along the nerve. Um, so, but otherwise, the nerve still conducts action potentials for motor function and you know, sensory functions. So you're not getting any sort of frank numbness or weakness. Um, the other thing about, of course, dermatomal sensory loss in the upper limb is that there is so much crossover with dermatomes that you need to really cut a few nerve levels just to get a pure patch of numbness in the neck. So there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of crossover there. So uh, the other interesting thing about Mandy's presentation is that she was at least uh, at one stage an elite gymnast. So assuming that she was very flexible and probably had very good muscle tone at one stage, but since then she's had kids and has a sedentary lifestyle. Uh, how important is her uh, previous activity to her presentation? And there are, are there certain tests or things that we need to consider as far as uh, potential hypermobile uh, issues? Yes. Well, this, this is what we really need to be on the lookout for. I think as a profession, we're so used to obviously applying physical forces with healing intent. And that involves delivering forces to a collagen framework, essentially. And what we need to be always aware of is the type of collagen and how stretchy it is and someone's mechanical integrity. And the subpopulation of patients like Mandy, which she's, she's obviously hypermobile, as we'll discuss in a moment, um, that really links in strongly to why she has chronic stiffness. And so we see this classic presentation of a flexible, often young woman, um, but can obviously hypermobility can happen in males as well. Um, so we see this predilection to dance and gymnastics because of a very flexible framework. But later on, that can be a bit of an issue when there is less activity because more joint mobility means more uh, reliance on muscular stabilization. 
And when the activity level drops, muscles are having to operate in one position, they fatigue rapidly, and we start to get a creep on the connective tissues. And so, you know, there's this tendency for instability later. Uh, and so I always, I always, uh, just a mnemonic like vindicates, run through possibilities in my mind of the patient. And one, and the C in vindicates not only stands for congenital, but I make it stand for collagen as well, because I always want to be mindful, okay, could this patient have uh, a collagen issue? And if I'm going to deliver mechanical treatment modalities to this patient, then I want to be very mindful of that. And in fact, there's a saying in rheumatology circles, if you can't connect the issues, think connective tissues, which is a nice one to remember because as we'll discuss moving forward, if you've got it, collagen makes up a lot of different tissues, including your vasculature, which is very relevant in a case like this uh, young woman. Of course, one way to, I guess, classify hypermobility and give you a sense of what collagen Type is like is the baking scale. I, I never know if I'm pronouncing that correctly because I've only seen it written and not spoken. So maybe you can correct me if I've got that wrong. But can you explain a little bit about how useful this uh, uh, baking scale might be in this Mandy? Oh, look, I, I use it regularly. Um, and my understanding is that's how it's pronounced too, Anthony. So perhaps we're both inaccurate, but hopefully we're not. Um, look, the baking scale is a series of movements. Uh, you can search on it online very quickly and bring up images. Um, and I find it extremely useful often for patients like Mandy who are completely unaware. They've gone through most of their life not realising that their level of mobility is anything out of the, anything away from the average. They just think they might be a bit more flexible. But when you explain to them the implications, a whole lot of their world starts to make sense. So we, they're scaled uh, using using a series of movements. First, their ability to uh, bend forward and touch their toes. Now, generally, if they can pay, place the palms of both hands on the ground, you'd score that as a one. Um, and all of the rest of the movements are bilateral. So it's a nine-point scale. Secondly, you get them to see if they can flex their wrist and place their thumb against their forearm or touch their thumb to their forearm. And if they can do that both sides, that gets a, a to one point. Then you're looking at hyperextension of both the elbows and knees. And if they can go, if they can hyperextend those beyond 180 degrees, then that's a one, a score of one for each of those. Uh, and then placing the palm of the hand and fingers flat on a surface and being able to extend the fifth finger beyond 90 degrees, both sides is another one each side. And so if you score all of those movements, you'll end up with a score out of nine. Uh, and I often see patients who, you know, are very high on that scale. Above six is considered to be significantly hypermobile. And once you go off the end of that scale, you're into, you know, more connective tissue type pathologies. And we're talking Ehlers-Danlos is probably the one most people would recognise mostly, but also things like Marfan syndrome and things. Uh, and these people can just spontaneously dislocate joints. Um, just with playing tennis, for example, or they they roll their ankles easily. They have other injuries trivially. Um, so often with someone like Mandy, if you look past, look through their past uh, with their history, that it, it often makes sense. They'll have had a tendency for sprains and strains quite readily because they are so mobile.
Yeah, well, I'm definitely a zero on the Bayton scale. Uh, that's the <laughs> highest number, and maybe I'd like that one. Uh, and as you said before, this loss of muscle tone, you know, that someone who is quite flexible and has great muscle tone and great neurosensory awareness would probably be able to manage that better than someone who's now less active. So, so now we uh, get into the conversation about the MRI finding and the degenerative change that shows no um, impingement onto the nerves. But with that background understanding, we've got someone who is very flexible, hypermobile, may have um, reduced sensory motor control. Um, is this maybe a conversation or an understanding about why this person might be getting some nerve-related symptoms, even though from an MRI pure finding that that's not indicated? Oh, look, absolutely. I think one thing, one important thing to remember is that standard MRI is done in a non-weight-bearing position with the neck still. So it doesn't show us uh, what she's like with weight-bearing or with movement. So we're left to piece that together by looking at other clues on the MRI and the clinical findings. So what I mean by other clues on the MRI, for example, let's look at just cervical disc degeneration itself. We know that cervical discs are on average between four and five mil thick, say at C4, five and five, six. Um, C5, six being the most mobile segment in terms of sagittal plane motion, um, clinicians should expect to find the majority of degenerative changes at C5-6. It's the most vulnerable to a whiplash injury. Um, and so with disc degeneration being quite prevalent, as I said, near universal after 40 or 50 years of age, um, you're starting to get reduced stabilization in the neck. And so the cervical disc, we know its compression stiffness determines uh, axes of motion and stability. You've got the unctionates there. But when discs degenerate in the neck, what it does is it leads to greater translation uh, and sort of angular rotation movements. And so the axis of motion actually moves a bit forward around the anterior, anterior annulus, which is much stronger. And so we start to get this, let's say, wayward movement. So one of the things to watch out for with cervical disc degeneration, even though it's not considered the most prevalent pain source, is that it leads to a degree of segmental instability. And this starts to put greater shear forces on the facet joints and things like that. So it actually is now the facets become more likely pain generators. So the presence of disc degeneration, we need to... Uh, take into account when we start thinking about this mechanical system again. So remember when we started today, we talked about thinking about the neck as a mechanical system. And then the fact that this mechanical system is wired into a plastic brain and that we have this extraordinary sensory system. So obviously we desire when we treat a patient to use these bony levers and this extraordinary sensory population to gain leverage over central neurology and pain modulation and all of this but we have to keep in mind that there's an integrity of that system that we're using and that is it up to the types of approaches and leverages that we're going to place on it so if we take a, a person like mandy a woman like mandy who's hypermobile now she's got some degenerative changes beginning in those discs 
when she's moving or sleeping in certain positions, because she can occupy quite in range postures and she's static for a period of time and doesn't have the resistance and the holding elements, that she can get this creep. And so it's quite likely that she can have reductions in foramenal area and um, the diameter in certain tilting postures or sleeping postures uh, over time that could dynamically insult nerve roots. So we're not talking about a frank, constant neural compression that we would see on an MRI with a, with a big protrusion, you know, compressing the nerve root. We're talking about more a dynamic situation. So we have to look at a patient like Mandy and try and, I guess, imagine in our mind what's happening in her neck as she moves around and goes throughout her day. Um, and so there's obviously a tendency for her to place stretch forces on the nerve roots, compression loads in various situations, ischemic effects, things like that. Um, and so that's going to obviously be further exacerbated by any reduction in neuromuscular control. So Mandy, we haven't gotten to the proprioceptive side of things yet, but someone like Mandy now having a reduced sensory understanding of her neck, a reduced ability to read accurately where it is and maintain control, that's going to be an even bigger problem. Now, Mandy also experiences scapular pain. If we were to think that this is coming from the neck, most chiropractors would instantly jump to this being a somatic referral. Can this scapular pain also be coming from nerve irritation? And if so, what tests would you do to uh, rule that in or rule that out? Yes, well, we, um, we do a, another program entirely on this, on, on what, what's called occult nerve root lesions, where we look at, tracing back patients from a true radiculopathy where a nerve root syndrome in the neck has really declared itself. And so they did a nice study in this where they traced that back and looked at where do these conditions often, often begin? So before you actually start affecting the nerve itself, the nerve root sheath can be irritated. So the dural sleeve. So the dural sleeve itself is innovated imagine it like a short sleeve shirt sleeve on an arm right so it accompanies the nerve root out through the ivf so if you are irritating the dural root sleeve um, it tends to refer pain in a what's called a sclerotogenous distribution so because it's not a neural representation of the limb now it's say a c56 sclerotogenous distribution which is often scapular so we start to see these scapular pain distributions uh, with early nerve root irritation as a referral from the dural sleeve. Um, and this can give classic scapular pain. So it may well be tweaking in your listeners now that you know some patient cases in the past where they, the patient complained of a persistent pain, either medial scapular border, superior scapular or underneath the scapula, and that was hard to shift, but then over time, then started to get the onset of more classic radicular pain in the arm. So we need to be on the lookout for scapular pain because it often is an early sign of nerve root irritation. And in fact, they've even found that it works a bit like a clock dial, actually. I want you to imagine a clock uh, in terms of localizing the level. So you'll see the five and six roots have a sort of a super scapular distribution. The seven root classically uh, distributes along the medial border of the scapula and the 
eighth root feels like it's sort of underneath the scapula to the patient. So now if, if that is the case and we, and we want to try and differentiate between say a myofascial expression of that pain or just an even a facet joint referral from the neck can refer down to the scapula. So what sort of things could we do? Well, we want to try and irritate the nerve mechanically and see if it's mechanically sensitive. So this is where neural tension tests might be handy, for example. So the classic upper limb neural tension test is the brachial plexus tension test. And so we want to progressively stretch the nerve and see if that either the patient is apprehensive with that, guards against it, there's a difference from side to side or even reproduces the scapular pain itself or the tingling. I'm really loving this uh, conversation and how we're breaking neck pain down to its neurological basis and identifying the, I guess, the local level of the lesion. But you know what? We're going to let our listeners hang right there and call this the end to part one of this conversation about the chronically stiff and painful neck. Uh, no doubt, um, There'll be many people who are very keen to uh, listen to the next podcast where we'll be going or continuing the conversation and of course going into the central nervous system processing, uh, the output mechanisms and critically the management of Mandy's uh, chronically stiff and painful neck. Uh, Anthony Nicholson, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really uh, enlightening and I'm very much looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Anthony. Me too. And it's been a real pleasure. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. I look forward to chatting with you again on the next ACA podcast.